everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Okay, now that you sat down, if you are here and don't have a Bible, I would recommend that you grab one from the back carts. While you're doing that, I pulled kind of a like last minute, I feel like we need to take communion today. So if as you walked in, you didn't grab one of these little plastic cups with a little cracker and a little juice in, those are also on those back carts or in the lobby. So as you come in, we'll be taking communion together. Open up when you get those Bibles to the book of Daniel. Chapter 1 will be in Daniel up until Christmas season, which is not actually that many weeks away. Uh, The season of Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day. It's the time when we prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus uh, as an infant. But We've got, we've got a few weeks to spend in Daniel. Let's just put it that way. Um, as you get there, maybe you're already there. I just want to give you a little bit of kind of historical context. The Israelites are uh, divided shortly after the monarchy is established. So you have King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then there's a division between northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel more quickly gives in to idol worship. In other words, their hearts no longer belong to Yahweh, God's revealed name to his people in the Old Testament, but they are divided among the pagan idols of their time and place. And so they are taken by the Assyrian kingdom, The southern kingdom, Judah, is faithful for a longer time, and they have some kings that return or repent and go back to the ways of God. But the general trajectory of even the southern kingdom is decline and turning away from God. So you have, in this time period, three major world powers. There's the Egyptians, from where God led them out of slavery in the south, the Assyrians from the north, and the Babylonians to the west. So while the Assyrians march down, trying out their attempt at world conquest, they they manage to conquer much of the world. But an amazing thing happens right at the little border between this little nation with very little military strength. Uh, They stop. And according to one way the story is told in the Bible, an angel of the Lord stands there and guards this little tiny country of Judea. Another version of the story is right on that border, the army gets sick. They're struck with plague, and so they turn back. And so the nation of Judea is preserved for another few decades when the rise of Babylon sweeps across Uh, what was the former Assyrian kingdom, but also now envelops the Judean kingdom because uh, God had warned them over and over again through multiple prophets like, turn back to my ways or judgment is coming. And so the Babylonian conquest of the southern kingdom of Judea is uh, part of that judgment. 
So before I read from Daniel chapter 1, I just want to light this candle to remind us that we are in God's presence here this morning. And so come Holy Spirit. We need you. We need you to understand and we need you to live. We need your strength and we need your peace. We need your joy and we need your love. And so come and meet us. Amen. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasury or the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, which kind of has some pizzazz to it, his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had brought, been brought to Babylon as captives. So just to re rewind a little bit, when Assyria conquers the northern kingdom of Israel, their policy is we are going to wipe them out. We are going to basically make sure that no remnant of these people's values, cultures, or belief continues to exist. Remember, God stops the Assyrian invasion at the border of Judah. When the Babylonians come, they're slightly more forgiving, but they take, uh, instead of wiping out the culture, they, they decide we're going to take the best of the best, the cream of the crop, to Babylon, basically brainwash them, and through that method, we'll turn them into good Babylonian citizens. So, Ashvazaz uh, is told, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking men, verse 4. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. So let's stop right there. Kind of, we'll, I'll, I'll direct you back there to verse 5 here in a second. Uh, keep your Bibles open. Babylon has a four-phase strategy to taking these Judean nobles and turning them into or assimilating them, if I want to use a Star Trek language word, to become Babylonians and no longer like faithful to Yahweh, their God. The first step to, of the strategy is isolation. We will take them away from their friends and family, away from their homes, away from the, the places that they worship, and we will drop them into our own city where we will have our temples and our cultural kind of messaging and, and, and people will surround them with people who believe like us. And over time, they will lose their identity, they will lose who they are, and they will stop looking distinct and begin looking just like us. Now, this is significant not only for the Jews who were exiled into Babylon now 2,800 years ago, 
but relevant to Christians today because what the book of Daniel is actually about is how to live in exile. How to live in a world or live in a dominant culture that has different values, different beliefs, and is attempting to brainwash us into abandoning our core beliefs and values and become more like everybody else. This happens essentially with the Roman occupation of Judea, the Christians who are just like following Jesus in those first couple of centuries are experiencing the same uh, realities. We're a, we're a, a faith minority in a saturated majority that is projecting different values, behaviors, and beliefs than our own. And so what I want you to remember is that to be a follower of Jesus in the coming decades will look a lot more like living in exile than living in Jerusalem, to put that in like Old Testament terms. The culture's symbols, values, beliefs, and practices are not going to be Christian beliefs and practices. And so the way that we can interface with this culture comes to us in a few different ways. But let me first wrap up this first strategy of Babylon. The first strategy of, we'll just use the word world here. World as like in contrast to God's kingdom and Jesus' ways. While the Babylonian strategy is to isolate, the way to avoid isolation is the opposite, to stay in community, to find people who put Jesus at the center of their lives, people who follow Jesus, who hold the values and the beliefs and practices that you do as you like want to live them. Now, let me back up. I have a little bit, I have a diagram that I have at the beginning of the slideshow, Tom. The way that we then live in this like dominant culture can fall into basically three categories. The first is to be a separatist. And for some reason, when I hear that word, I think of Star Wars episode one. But anyway, uh, separatism has a strong word there at the beginning that you all see, separate. And this is basically, we can maintain our values and beliefs through withdrawal. And so in this strategy, we have Christian dentists. We only listen to Christian music. We only watch Christian television. We only go to Christian chiropractors. We only have Christian friends. We, we, we create a little subculture and put walls up to keep the majority culture out. And that's how we live in exile, by staying true to God. Now, what's the big problem with this strategy? You can't share the word, you are separate. And Jesus says, go into all nations, make disciples, and baptize people. So if you withdraw, create a fort, and hide behind the walls, you're actually avoiding or ignoring one of the main or basic commands of Jesus to go and make disciples. And so this strategy, while it seems like a safe place to be, can actually, I think, as we look at our own nation's history, accelerate the secularization of a country uh, and diminishes the 
ability of the church, of the people of God, to spread the good news about Jesus. Now, on the other extreme, have you guys heard the word syncretism? What's the word in that, like, what's, what do you see at the beginning of that word? Sync. It's when you just sync up to the culture. So syncretism is when you lose your values or beliefs through cultural engagement. You look just like the culture. So you say, in the name of proclaiming the good news about Jesus, I will become just like everybody else. I will say yes to everybody else's invitations to live this way, to, to believe this way, and I'll just, I'll have Jesus, but my life will basically be in sync with everybody and the dominant culture. So this is one way to live in exile, but in that process, what's the, what's the problem? You lose yourself. You lose your values. You lose your beliefs. You lose the way you live. You lose God's way. Um, and, of course, we're going to try to find a middle ground, hold the tension. There's a third way. I'll call it the faithfulness to Jesus way. We're going to engage with the world while maintaining our values and beliefs. In fact, I would up this even another level because what we find Daniel doing, he doesn't just engage the world, he serves it. He serves the Babylonian empire, but he sets boundaries around what is most uh, important to God. He makes those things that are most important to God most important to him, and he will not cross the line when he is invited or even pressured to do so. And so, Strategy one of the Babylonian empire, and we'll just say the world's, to turn us into good little Babylonian citizens is to isolate us. The second strategy, verse five, it says, the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. Number two, we have enculturation. They are shown the goods of Babylon. They are shown the best of Babylonian literature, but more than that, the best of Babylonian food. So it's a vision of the good life. If you become like us, look at this. You can have the best slow-roasted beef brisket available. And the wine is spectacular. And you know who brings out these really beautiful cuts of meat? really beautiful women. That was the practice. Like with dinner came female companionship. And so there's this offer to show them the best of their like culture. This is what you can have. Think of it like a little commercial for Babylon. This is what will make you happy. This is how you can achieve fulfillment. This is what you really want. Come and eat at my table. And so enculturation, the, the look at what we have, and it's actually like food is good. Nothing wrong with food. Wine is good. Nothing wrong with wine. But what we'll find out is it's actually a strategy to get these young Jewish boys to abandon their faith in God and commitment to the scriptures. So how do they and how do we stand against the enculturation? we have an alternative story. We find a root in our scriptures. 
we stand on a different foundation. So the Babylonian foundation is we have a vision of the good life that includes doing what you want, what feels good when you want to. And the story of uh, the scriptures, as Daniel would have read them, is that's actually called slavery. You become enslaved to the strongest desire that you have at any given moment rather than set free by the way of God or the truth of the scriptures. So let's keep reading. So verse five, the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter the royal service. And so finally, integration. This wasn't gonna happen all at once. The Babylonians knew that if we try to convert you into a Babylonian and a weekend retreat, you will reject it and you will die resisting our attempt to turn you who are faithful to God into us who serve the gods of Babylon, money, sex, and power, whatever it is. They had a three-year program to slowly turn and convince these young Jewish boys into good Babylonian citizens who live like Babylonians, who desire like Babylonians, who worship like Babylonians, and who put their ultimate loyalty uh, to like the king of Babylon. And so what's the counter to that? What do we find Daniel doing? Well, he stays committed to the practices that he grew up with in his hometown back in Judea. And so we find later that he prays three times a day, very faithfully. For us today, we would expand that to like the act of communion or prayer, silence, solitude, any of the spiritual disciplines that like we sometimes experiment with here on a Sunday, but like that are available to you any day of the week, like imaginative prayer, like simply being silent, waiting, uh, and, and noticing the presence of God drawing near to you. So while every day there were things in their calendar that Babylon had assigned them to do that would slowly turn them into a different kind of people, into losing themselves, they kept committed to the practices of their God. So verse 5, verse 6. Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azirah were four of the young men chosen from all the tribes of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azirah was called Abednego. What's the final strategy? of Babylon to convert these young men into Babylonians. New names. We are going to change your identity. Our fourfold strategy ultimately takes us or will take you to a place where you have a new core. You will see yourself in a different way. You will believe different things. Uh, You will live like us. Now, I think there's something worth pausing on what happens in these names because it's very subversive 
and it's not overt in the English. But if you were to look at the meaning of the Hebrew names as contrasted to the meaning of the new names that are given, there's something akin to Senator Palpatine in this, like, uh, or Sauron, perhaps. By the way, may I just say, you guys have until Christmas to watch the Rings of Power series before I start using that as illustration on Sunday morning. So you've been warned about spoilers that may come. Okay, anyway, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you the name and what it was changed to. I'm going to pause for just a second or two so that you can like just take it in. Okay, so Daniel means Yahweh is my judge. Belteshazzar means treasurer of Bel, which is like the, one of the gods of Babylon, the equivalent of Marduk. God is my judge. At the end of the day, God will judge me versus the treasurer of Marduk. There's, there's an identity change, but there's also a value shift. What's most important in life? One of the things I find, even for like us who say we follow Jesus, and I feel the pull, so it's not you, it's us, is that when it comes down to it, when there's a decision to make, instead of putting it in front of God and saying, what do I do? How can I say yes to you in this decision? We, we revert to a, where's the money? So if I'm going to change a good job, is it because of God's calling on my life? Or is it because there's more money? There's a battle going on for our hearts. Now, money's not bad. Money can be used for good. I like money. But, but when it becomes the driving force in your life, that is a strategy or evidence that the strategy is working to turn you into Babylonians. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Hananiah means Yahweh shows grace. Shadrach, under the command of Achu. Thank you. Aku actually is how it's spelled, but I or it's pronounced. Power and might in the worldly sense. For the Babylonians, grace, gift. Mishael was called Meshach. This is another one of those subtle things. Who is like Yahweh? Which is a way of saying, like, no one is as awesome as Yahweh. Versus who is like Aku, which I believe is the moon god. There's no, there's nothing like the little G gods of our world if you really want to find happiness. And finally, Azira was called Abednego. Yahweh is my helper versus servant of Nu. One of the amazing things, we're not taking communion yet, just going to reference it. One of the amazing things about the God that is revealed to us in the Bible is, is he's not looking for slaves. 
He doesn't actually need them. Like the ancient Near Eastern gods were just looking for slaves, looking for people to like worship them out of like some, I don't know what, gave them power or something. Our God becomes the servant. In the ancient Near East, the slaves prepared the table for their God. In the Bible, our God prepares the table for us. And so the Babylonian strategy is to change identity. The Christian, or the the way of Jesus, actually shows us a way forward where we can hold on to our beliefs, our values, uh, and engage or serve the culture. And so uh, let's call that just living with boundaries. But there's a, like, we'll say a little more about boundaries perhaps here in a few minutes. But let's keep reading verse 8. There's a small example of how Daniel does this. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine to them by the king. This is a big turning point. Daniel says no. At the end of the day, that's what a boundary is. Like, there's a difference between you and me. I have the ability to say no. It's actually super hard to say no. Have any of you noticed that? I find myself in a place where I have to say no a lot with my three-year-old in particular, and it wears you down <laughs> to set a boundary to say, no, that's not good for you. No, you have to wear clothes when you're outside. No, you know, like there's just like, <laughs> there's a lot, it, there's no, it's a lot of like, this is what good is, and you are trying to do something outside of this boundary. But Daniel, it says here, was determined to defile, not to defile himself by eating the food and wine that was given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat those unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. So God is at work even before this big moment. But he responded, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to other youths our age, I am afraid the king will have me beheaded. This is pretty interesting that it is fear that becomes the motivator in uh, this man's decision. If I don't do all the things like everyone else is doing them, what will happen to me? His fear was probably fairly real (laughs) in that if the king finds out that someone didn't obey an order, it's not just Daniel's head, it's the servant's head. And so Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of, chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azira. And he says, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Parents love this verse, um, as do vegetarians, but that's not actually what it's about. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. And at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see which is actually very honoring of Daniel to say like, I'm not asking for three months. Like we'll do this just long enough that you'll notice, but maybe the king won't notice. Like if there's a change in our appearance. Uh, Verse 13, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to other young men who are eating the king's food, then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. 
So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, so that's the three years, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azirah, Azirah. So they entered the royal service. When the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Which is pretty amazing, because most of these enchanters and uh, magicians would have been raised like from birth in the Babylonian way. So here you have the king of Babylon saying, these guys who live differently, he did, that, the king probably doesn't even know that they're eating different food like because it's not about the food anyway. But these guys who he will learn are, is still faithful to the God of the Bible actually bring something to me that I value, that I see worth in. Um, they, they have or seem to be given a supernatural understanding of Babylonian literature, of Babylonian literature. But in part, maybe it's because they stand above it or they haven't like bought into it at the same level. And the king can see these men have wisdom and understanding, balanced judgment, 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. In verse 21, it says, Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus, which is pretty amazing. So Daniel's service, Daniel is serving Babylon beyond the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He serves Babylon until there's no more Babylon. Because you know who King Cyrus is? There's another kingdom farther out east. The Persians come and conquer Babylon. And so Daniel's service to the kingdom of Babylon outlasts the king. So there's more than just Daniel's faithfulness at play here. Like Daniel makes a set of decisions he has a, value, a set of values and beliefs, and he is able to say no when the invitation is to cross that line. For him, what he eats is really important because it's found in, you guys remember our Leviticus series? There's like a bunch of food rules for the Old Testament people of God. Eat this, don't eat this. And the Babylon is saying like, I'm inviting you to eat slow roasted pork salted pork. Come on. And Daniel says, that's not okay for me. He takes a huge risk by saying, no, I have a set of values and beliefs that I'm not willing to sacrifice in order to make you happy with me. That's why it's so hard to say no, because saying no risks anger, retaliation, and loss of relationship. That's why it's hard to say no. 
That's why we say yes even when we don't want to. Brene Brown, have you read any Brene Brown? Calls it a dirty yes. When we say yes, even though something inside of us knows, I don't think I want to do this. I don't think this is right. And then you end up saying yes anyway. She calls that a dirty yes. Well, there was an opportunity. It was an invitation. If I say yes to this little thing, like it's just a little compromise, then maybe I'll have influence and maybe, maybe I'll be able to evangelize the king of Babylon if I just eat the food. Wouldn't that be tempting? To like give up a, give up a value to just gain the king's ear. But it's not, again, it's not actually Daniel uh, who through his effort and rigorous like study becomes uh, sound of judgment and full of wisdom. You know where that all comes from? It is actually a story about God's faithfulness. So Daniel takes a risk and God is faithful. Daniel risks it all, but as we find out in the stories of Jesus, God gives it all. Daniel risks his life, God gives his life. And so there's an invitation from the king of Babylon to say, come and eat at my table. And there's a bunch of things that like look pretty enticing on that table. We're living in a world where there's a bunch of things served by the world that would cause us to like abandon a value or compromise a belief. It usually falls around the ideas of money, sex, and power. Or maybe it's busyness, social media, and uh, I don't know, being cool. <laughs> you know. What is it that the king of Babylon the king of this world, the prince of this world has put out on a table for you to come and eat. I'm going to actually just say, I'm going to pray this for you, but pray it in your own hearts. Holy Spirit, show to me the place that I am being tempted to compromise. What am I consuming that is you know, it's just small, but it's actually changing little bit by little bit who I am and what I hold most dear. So Holy Spirit, reveal to me the temptation that's in my life right now. Amen. So there's a difference between um, having an insight and change. <laughs> like, okay, so I've had this insight, like I'm going to be on my phone less maybe because it's doing something to my anxiety level that's not good for me or my family. But then what comes after insight? Like what are, where's, the, where's the change in like the community that you tap yourself into, the spiritual practices, the the... The, the Bible rootedness, right? The alternative story. Where's the, where's the boundaries? What boundaries are you going to set around the thing that you are tempted by so that you don't go eat from, the, eat from Babylon's table? Now, 
I use the word repent a lot. What repent means is to simply turn. And so repent doesn't mean I'm going to feel really bad about it. And if I feel really bad about it, then I'll stop doing it. That doesn't really work anyway. Like guilt is not actually a great motivator for change typically. It's, it's, uh, it's something that replaces <laughs> the, tempt, the thing that's causing you guilt. You need something to replace that thing. Otherwise, you'll just be consumed with the thing. And so when the Bible says to repent, it's actually turn back to the real king who serves the most life-giving, life-sustaining meal. So would you guys stand and get your communion cups ready? The king of the entire universe invites you to his table. King Jesus gives his very life so that you might really live. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he gathers together his closest friends and he breaks bread and he gives thanks for it. And he says, this is my body and I give it to you. Do this. Take and eat this to remember me. And so we eat at the king's table and this little act of resistance to Babylon's table is a way that we turn back to Jesus because we remember he gave it all. So take, eat, remember, and believe. And in our story, Daniel says no to the wine of Babylon. But on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus takes a cup of wine and he gives thanks for it. He blesses it. And he offers it to us. He says, this is my blood shed for you. This is better than anything that you can find in this world. My blood is more precious than anything that you can find in this world. So take it, drink, remember, and believe. I'm going to invite the worship team up, but in the moment, in the moments that they take to get set up, I would just invite you to stand with your hands open in a posture of prayer, saying, or inviting Jesus to come. Let your thoughts keep going back to Jesus as he serves you at his table. So come Holy Spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.